The theme for this evening's talk is the wisdom of equanimity. Initially, I'd like to, uh, if I may, uh, speak to you a little bit about uh, uh, the past, then bring it forward uh, to the present, our experiences, our uh, practices, and then um, go to a deeper level with it. It's rather important to remember, to uh, bear in mind, that in the depths of the Buddha's uh, realizations two and a half thousand years ago, he attempted individually and collectively to bring about a significant, a major shift in consciousness. And it's rather useful, valuable, I would say, to bear in mind of the strength and the diversity and the philosophical religious exploration that was available to the people of North India, to the kingdoms of North India at that time. And there was a general uh, recognition that in uh, ancient India of belief in God, devotion to God, worshipping God, faith in God, and various rites, rituals, experiences, mystical shifts of uh, consciousness, and a recognition, too, of the different, as it were, forms or manifestations of God. Sometimes these were revealed or reflected in regarding that which arises, that which is created as God, as extraordinarily powerful. The name given was Brahma. That which sustained itself Various events in life sustain themselves as Vishnu. What a power it is that events, circumstances, this very life, earth, movement of life is constantly sustaining itself through everything. What a power, Vishnu. But there is also the endings, death, change, dissolution, disintegration, fading away. What was becomes what is and dissolves and disappears. Shiva. So in the one name of God, Vishnu, sustained. Brahma, the arising, the creating factor, element in this great field of existence of this earth and beyond it. Shiva, that which is finishing, destroying, ending, concluding. And the Buddha started the minor revolution He took away the mythological status, stripped it away, and in the stripping of it away, tried to look and endeavoured to look from the standpoint of consciousness at simple, bare actuality. There is a rising, there is a staying, and there is a passing. You and I as human beings, as he pointed out with great frequency, really have to come to terms with this. But in Upaya, 
that is in skillful means, he didn't dismiss the language of the gods. He didn't make it rather cold and dry. And he retained some of those words. He retained the word Brahma. Very skillful. And when you walk up here, that means the spirit rock up the pathway, probably have come to notice those four words up there because there's not much to read around here, thank God. <laughs> and as you walk up, you will have seen the names of the four buildings. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upaka. Metta. The contemporary translation for it is uh, loving-kindness. Look at the text, and it's love. Compassion. Compassion is the expression of love with a very specific actualized intention to end the suffering. So where love is expressed, which is to resolve suffering wherever it may be, in whatever manifestation it may reveal itself, this is compassion. It's passion with love. Compassion. Third is mudita. Mudita is appreciative joy. It's a very powerful force because it is one of the liberating factors to free us from ownership, from the idea of possession as having value, from the sadness of the constructions of I and my and me and what I have, what I want and what I own. And appreciative joy is the joy and the happiness which emerges out of the human being which is towards that which I can never possess, which I can never have. And if I understand that deeply, of course I'll see it in the nature, in the extraordinariness of the Milky Way and the stars at night. I'll see it in the emergence of the flower, in the brief momentary contact with a beautiful human being, and the deer and the creatures of the earth. And I can't own, I can't possess, I can't have. And if my life as a human being is truly rich in appreciative joy, then the superficiality of pleasure, the pursuit of ownership, will seem so trivial because some other power is coming through. Rather the same with Upeka, which I'll uh, concentrate on in a moment which gets translated as equanimity. And it's important to understand with equanimity, it's the capacity to stay steady, as the Buddha said, as steady as a rock in a hurricane, to stay steady as a mountain rather than a hurricane, to stay steady amidst two primary forces in life, the pull towards attraction, wanting. Objects, possessions, people, whatever. 
and the polarized force that moves in human beings so destructively, which is aversion, resistance, disliking, putting down, blaming, and of course, in its more intense form, hate, violence, and the willful destruction of life. And the Buddha described these four as Brahma, which means divine, to be with God. Brahma Vihara. Vihara is abiding place. Monks live in a Vihara. It's a reminder of what to abide with, what to be with. Love, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. The Buddha took away, dismissed, undermined the conventional belief in God who loves us. Said, realize, find that which is truly divine, which is within you. Extraordinary thing to do. And in one of the explanations and all the views that go with it, and there are many of them, there are many discourses of the Buddha. And in the end of these discourses, it often says in the text, the listening ones were pleased or were satisfied with what they listened to. And there's one discourse, it says, it comes to the end of the discourse, and it says, the listening ones were not pleased with what they listened to. <laughs> when one takes one's construction away of religious people, of a transcendent God who looks after us, who takes care of us, who is benign or whatever, makes people of a religious feeling feel uncomfortable. It's shaking a belief. But it's a shift, and it's a very important shift, to that which is truly divine, which emerges out of a human heart, this is important, through realization. It's a realization. And what's significant about the realization is there is nowhere in the teachings of the Buddha on the four Brahma Viharas, on the four places of divine abiding, in which he gives any kind of meditation, instruction, method, technique, or how to do it. It's not found in 5,000 discourses. I know those discourses better than the back of my hand. And yet there is an appropriateness for practices, methods, and techniques. It's a realization, and the realization is making it real making it authentic. When we explore that and look into that, and just to speak with the, 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 the fourth one this evening on uh, the wisdom of uh, Upeka, it is an extraordinary, deeply, profoundly beautiful element within the being because, and I'll try to communicate this with you, it acts as something of a bridge. 
It acts as a bridge between what is relative and what is ultimate. And therefore there's something divine about abiding in a deep place of equanimity there. Sometimes, in the language of God, and I had a rather a good example of this at the one-day uh, workshop that I uh, gave uh, down the hill there uh, on the Saturday. And uh, up here we give the Sermon on the Mount, as I sometimes say. <laughs> that there are many words for God. There's a text in India of a thousand words for God. The one which I feel gets closest to the Dharma, if we are to use the word God, is the Arabic word for God, Allah. If we are to use a word for God, let's use this word. It's the best word. And the reason that I say that is in the use of the word Allah. The English is all. Whatever arises, arises from Allah. It arises from the all. In the talk on Saturday, I said at one point, I can't remember precisely what I said, I said something like uh, Allah, about some response to something, and I said, uh, Allah is gracious. Allah is supportive, like that. And people you know, listened to Christopher and, and giggled. I said this well, Allah is merciful, something like that. And people giggled. At the end of the one day, a Muslim came up to me who was in the one-day workshop from Pakistan and she said to me, they don't understand you, do they, Christopher? I said, no, they don't. She was a little disappointed to hear people giggling. These things happen. So the Buddha... in trying to make a shift away is profoundly interested in the all and what manifests out of the all, what manifests out of Allah. And said, in order that we don't get caught in our belief systems, let's look at what comes out of the being, giving this a primary importance and making it far more significant, significant than what we believe in. Very important. Right? What comes out of the being, what manifests in your life and my life, is far more significant than what we believe in. And that makes the shift. One of the important and why sometimes, for some people, we might believe or think or sense, and maybe just through sheer repetition, take the view that, well, 
clearly love or loving kindness, of course that's incredibly significant. It is. Who could argue with it? Compassion, that passion for life, that passion to explore, that passion to relieve suffering, to respond to it. Who would argue that that's not important in life? And similarly with appreciative joy, to be able to, to bring and experience huge joy in life, but there's not a trace of ownership around it, having for me. Just the joy itself, so much greater than just having and possessing, and all the cost of it. And sometimes it seems to me, and maybe to you as well, that equanimity is a kind of poor cousin of the other three. Oh, it's kind of tacked on at the end, and... and um, Oh, have a little equanimity when you're watching your knee sensations. <laughs> and somehow it's treated rather, rather lightly, hardly perhaps even sometimes getting a mention. And it has to be, as it were, brought very uh, directly or as much as possible uh, truly into the mainstream of what realization. And once again, we're not actually offered from the old discourses of the Buddha any method, technique, instruction, guideline. It's regarded in the Dharma of the Buddha so divine that one can't approach it in that way. It has to come to us. It has to be that uh, place of realization. So in the exploration of the uh, wisdom of uh, uh, equanimity from the relative, from the conventional. It requires, if not demands of us, an equanimity in relationship to those two primary forces which I just referred to. The force of attraction, the pull towards whatever it might be, and the aversion to. Because on these two forces, all human life is trapped. When we are identified with these two kinds of movement. And when the Buddha was asked, please tell us, he was asked, what is it that brings about on this earth so much suffering and so much conflict. Where does it come from? Where does it emerge from? And he said, profoundly uh, great insight, he said, it emerges from holding on to things dearly. Where does all conflict and suffering emerge from? And his response was, it emerges from holding on to things dearly. And if you and I are now looking into our life and our relationship to it, that in life which has been held on to, past, present or future, ideas or thoughts, experiences or possessions, 
loved ones or situations, whatever, the very holding on to carries with it the seeds for the suffering. And it is no easy matter for us to turn our attention, this is where the equanimity comes in for us, and to ask ourselves, in that, whatever it is which is important to me, including my own life, including the life of my closest and dearest, including whatever has occurred in one's life, in heart, mind and body, past or present or whatever, that sometimes in some areas of life, we have to look, because we know the seeds for the conflict is there, to bring, to look at it, to intentionally bring that forward in consciousness and to say, is this which I have a connection with, an association with, a relationship with, whatever it might be, inner or outer, is this being held onto? Is this being clung to? Whether it's a memory, vision for the future, a place, an environment, a situation, a relationship, no matter what is it being clung to. And sometimes we hardly know it. Sometimes it, we hardly know that we're holding on to. I remember a small thing, I may have mentioned this some years ago. I go to uh, in India uh, annually. And we have a school there, Bhagnivihar School, the School of Wise Abiding School. And sending money to India, to the banks in India, is the biggest gamble as having money in, the, in Wall Street. <laughs> no, it's a bigger one. Because what can happen between West and the bank is money is sent from one end and as my own bank in England said, Christopher, are you quite sure you want to send money from our bank to their bank because it has a habit of disappearing, what we call down the black hole. <laughs> and there's one hell of a big black hole in India. So rather than take that because it's funding the school, I carry it, dana, donations, thousands of dollars, and I have it in, those of you who have been to Mother India will know, you have the wallet stuck inside the shirt, then it's hanging down, it's stuck inside my underpants, <laughs> it's, it's as close as it possibly can get to those uh, peculiar areas. And there it stays till I get to, uh, to Bodh Gaya. And once, while on the train, I always, just by habit, having been going now 30, 32, 33 years to India, as soon as I wake up, immediately on the train in India, no matter what, the hand goes like this. Just to check the string is there with the wallet pouch hanging there like this. And once 
few years ago, I woke up and I went, oh my God. And there was no string. Oh, hell. I didn't realize how much I'd been holding things dear. And the armpits sweated. Passport, I couldn't, you know, traveler's checks and my money, etc. Air ticket, all of that. There's money for the school for the year, whoa, etc. Down the front of my chest. And what had happened in the night, somehow or other, this pouch had moved around (laughs) and was hanging down my back. The ex- and then I go, oh, oh. <laughs> I really understood what the Buddha meant by appreciative joy. <laughs> it was really a divine experience. All right. So sometimes things flow out well for us. Sometimes we live in this world we don't know. Equanimity matters, it matters. It really, really, really matters. Because you and I in the rhythms of our life will be challenged and will be, will be facing with issues of equanimity. Some of you in this hall are dealing with it tonight. And if the mind... And this is a beautiful, uh, lovely thing about the divine uh, abidings, uh, Brahma, Vihara. There's quite often a kind of expectation. It's a spiritual expectation. It, it, it's rather sweet, but not often not very helpful. Is that there is an expectation on ourselves that in terms of situations, something has gone by, somebody has hurt us, somebody has offended us, somebody has been cruel, abused, disobeyed, spread bad gossip, whatever it might be, we all know these kinds of stuff. There may be truth or not truth or half-truth or exaggerated or whatever it might be. This happened one year ago, one week ago, five years ago, ten years ago, etc. And there can be, in that relationship to the past, either through the aversion, a memory which is stained with the aversion. And the staining of the memory with the aversion that's lying dormant is that one is unable to move on from it. And you and I have to be extraordinarily clear. We have to ask ourselves in our meditations, is there anyone in my life, is there anyone in my life towards whom I have any ill will? Anybody? Anybody. I don't care what happened. I don't care about what happened. I only care about your uh, touching something deep. And if there is something, someone, it can be far too much to expect us to be able to shift from resentment, blame, ill will and negativity to loving kindness, to love. And there's nowhere in the teachings where the Buddha has expected that or said that. One can't even find the word forgiveness in the Buddhist text. It's a Christian ideology. 
the, and therefore the place of what is divine is in the place of equanimity. I may not be able to bring out great love. I may not be able to make a huge 360-degree uh, turn or whatever, 180-degree turn in, in from uh, anger, blame, and negativity in holding to it to loving-kindness for. I may not be able to do that. That would be a huge in emotional shift. But can I go from blame to non-blame, from koda, blame, to akoda, non-blame? Can I go from dosa, resentment, hostility, negativity, hate, fault-finding, to adosa? Which means the shift in looking at anything from the past to equanimity about. I don't think, as a human being, I have to be, as a human being, loving to everybody. I don't think, as a human being, I have to be forgiving for everybody and what is done in this world and who does it, etc. And I don't think the, the Dharma demands that of us either. That it, it, what the challenge is, is to meet life and sometimes in the meeting of life, that, that divine element of equanimity, of staying steady amidst what is happening, is the primary task. Free from any expectation upon ourselves that I should be compassionate, that I should be loving, that I should be experiencing appreciative joy for what happened. Sometimes it's simply not humanly possible, and I don't think we should put such pressure upon ourselves. I just do not think it is wise. And therefore, we, we cherish the place and the wisdom and the significance of equanimity in the face of events. This is it's a profoundly, I'm uh, overusing this word this evening, apologize. It's a beautiful thing. So, that we see in the depths of our being where is the love? Where is the compassion? Where is the, what is the appreciative joy? What is the equanimity that's required for whatever it is? And this is the intimation. It is the whisper. It is the shout of what brings out of the being what is most noble. And as the Buddhist said, morning, noon, noon and night, the primary challenge of human beings is to live a truly noble life and not to compromise. And in a culture like we have, Western culture, American culture, it isn't easy because we live, as I mentioned earlier, in a blame culture. Terrible culture of blame. This has to be addressed at the personal level, at the social level, at the national level, at the international level, at the global level. The lawyers are the high priests of the blame culture. They have our society by the short and curlies. <laughs> if you don't understand that, then you... Better come to England. 
They're imprisoning people. There was a meeting of the teachers, the Dharma teachers, the Vipassana teachers, on the East Coast at IMS recently. Various friends, I wasn't there, but various friends, I was invited, but various friends were there in Tokyo. And issues go on in centres. But there is a forgetfulness of the great refuge of the Buddha. Sangang saranang gachami. When one said it once, then one's reminded, say it again. Dutiyampi sangang saranang gachami. One still hasn't got it. Say it for the third time. Tatiyampi sangang saranang gachami. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take, for the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Still hasn't got it. Third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. The the importance of this is being forgotten by people who should know better, people who take refuge in the Sangha. And when the Sangha was set up, men and women of deep, committed practice, the intention was, and should still remain, that the Sangha is utterly free and independent of the controlling tendencies of society. It's out of that world. It's out of that scope. And what is happening is that the lawyers are controlling the Sangha. And so when there was a meeting recently, the advice was being given to the Sangha, the Sangha of teachers, not to speak about some hot and controversial issues, not to speak about issues that are going on in the centres. Sangang Sarananga Chami, Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami, Tatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami. The Sangha must be free to speak its mind. It must be free to explore. It must be free to touch upon difficult and delicate issues. It must be free to say what's true and right. It must be free to say what is right. And nobody, no lawyer, no institution, no Buddhism, has the right to interfere with those who must speak their heart and mind and make mistakes even when speaking about people who are present or not present. It's a vital aspect. And there are terrible shadows of people becoming more and more afraid to speak up in case of litigation, in case somebody sues, in case something goes wrong, in case something is said which is not correct or not nor true. And now it's eating into the, into the body of the Sangha. It's tragic. We must protest about these things. Don't mind me getting a few things off my chest. Hang in. (laughs) In the exploration of uh, equanimity and in the movement, one feature of it is a fearlessness. We can't be afraid. We have to find ways to be steady. And in that steadiness, as was touched upon uh, an evening or two ago, in that very steadiness, it will carry with it that unknown. 
The steadiness must be filtered, the equanimity with the unknown. We speak a lot about living in safety. The Buddha, yes, has made reference to it. He's made reference to security. But it's got nothing to do with the world. It's got nothing to do with a safe life. The word is kema, K-H-E-E-M-A. The only safety and the only security in life is in liberation. And it's rather ironic that in order to realize that liberation, we have to live an unsafe life. Because the attention and the movement of it and the exploration of it requires of us that we have to take risk. And we need the divinity of equanimity to handle the risk when it's not going how we would like. We need it. We need equanimity so keenly. So we make our life unsafe because it opens it up, because it might give us the chance to realize that which is safe, which is the true security, which is not found in that which is arising, nor that which is staying temporarily, nor that which is passing away. It cannot offer it to us. Wow. Sometimes, talk about equanimity, sometimes little events in life are rather sweet and rather uh, uh, telling. I can't remember, maybe a year or 18 months ago, um, uh, in England, where we still have some halfway decent public services, And compared to this country, it's brilliant, I have to say. <laughs> and I was on the train with my uh, Kai, my uh, grandson, about four or five years of age. And I was taking him to the theatre to see um, Lion King. In the theatre, not, not the film. I, I've only talked about it earlier on. I've, I've been to the cinema two and a half times since 1990. <laughs> <There>. <laughs> two of them were a mistake. <laughs> and so we were on the train to the theatre. Lovely thing to support the theatre and all blessings on all of you who go to the theatre and all blessings for those who love the theatre, and some are, are in the theatre. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a live performance. It's unbeatable. So we're on the train, and a brand new train called in on the, on the train next to our train. It's a, a virgin train. You've heard of the airline and um, Richard Branson, who owns this airline and these trains there. And they had um, a poll in England, several years ago, they had a a poll in England of the 50 most influential people in history. 
and Richard Branson came in sixth. <laughs> and Jesus came in 48th. <laughs> True. It's a, it's a different culture in Europe to here. <laughs> so we're sitting on the train, my grandson and I. train was absolutely full. And, and, and he said, Grandad, look at that train. Some of these two million, two billion dollar trains. Called in, it's red and it's silver colour and all bright. bright. So I said, God, look at that train, Grandad, it's incredible. And I said, yes, it's, it's a virgin train. And then he said to me, Grandad, what's a virgin? <laughs> and the train was, you know, packed tight with people. And I just kind of scratched my head. I, well, uh, he said, tell me, Grandad, I want to know. Why are you hiding this from me? Eh? Well, what's, what's a virgin? And we're sitting, and sitting right opposite, like little table, those of you who've been on British trains, right opposite, there's a couple of young guys, you know, 20, 21, and they were nudging each other, and they thought, how's this white-haired old git going to get out of this one, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and other people were looking around and all grinning and smiling. <laughs> tell me, Granddad, what's a virgin? Why, don't, why can't you tell me? Why can't you explain to me? And you know, this time, carriages got interested in, in, in this. So it's one of those times for a little equanimity. And, and then I had a brainwave. They don't come very often, but it was a major breakthrough. I said to Kai, my grandson, it's very, very hard to explain what a virgin is. But what I'd suggest is, ask those two guys sitting in front. <laughs> And the face of these two guys just dropped. <laughs> and they looked at each other and said, what's a virgin? <laughs> uh, okay. So they went rather quiet and looked a little sheepish. And then we went on to other things. Right. Sometimes in dynamic, in the movement of things, there is this movement, I said earlier, of pull towards what do we hold dear? And out of the myriad events, situations, thousands and thousands on a, on a daily level. Think of all those things which have touched our senses just today, let alone in the course and rhythm of our life. It's often just a handful that have been picked on which we hold too dearly. And the holding to is the key. Holding too dearly is different from the divinity of love compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity around. Discerning wisdom, discriminating wisdom, using the Buddha's words now, is to know the difference between that divine expression and holding on to. Something. Yet, it acts as a bridge this bridge called equanimity. And some of you in the days here have uh, touched upon this. Sometimes, in the, the days and uh, in the interviews that we've been having with you, Sylvia and I, it's been uh, 
opportunities for appreciative joy. And sometimes we will hear the voice, as we heard today, of a breakthrough, beautiful, of a shift from what was to something fresh and being totally at ease with something because of a significant shift. Because of something where one felt a bit stuck or glued around and now feels genuinely unglued about whatever it might be. And many other expressions and forms of uh, language that come. In such times, sometimes the wish or the memory says, oh, this is wonderful, this is precious. Having had some clarity come through, some uh, insight come through, some uh, shift or change or whatever it may be come through, then let me go back to the form, let me go back to the practice, let me go back to the meditations. This is memory. No, 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 don't, 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 don't. Stay with the bare experience. Stay with the inner peace. Stay with the appreciation. Stay with the sense of resolution. Stay with the sense of something fresh and new entering into life, into consciousness. Just stay with it for as long as it is necessary. It might be in the staying with it, it's not in staying with it, but also a, a, a certain resting in the silence and in the stillness. This is when the power of trust is extraordinarily important. Because when we are able to rest in the silence and in the stillness and just stay with a shift, stay with our opening, stay with a fresh insight, this then organically and naturally for the human being has the chance without any effort or act of the will, it will naturally go deeper. It will naturally start to touch a very deep place because there's no pressure going on. But if we get back into working with the breath, if we get back into thinking, how can I apply this in my daily life? What will it mean in my, my daily life? We're moving into the conceptual framework. We don't need it. We just need to trust and rest in the silence. I may not know what I'm going to do with this. I may not know what this insight is telling me, what is being revealed, in terms of what will be revealed about it in the future. So just trust in the silence, in the stillness, in the unknown, in the equanimity. I just abide with that and just rest with it. And just trust that somehow it is deepening itself. And when it's really deepened, it will be a friend. It would be the best friend to one's consciousness. But we need the trust for it. We really need to trust it, our insight. Too often our mind is too, gets into a bit of a rush about things to do, what I have to do, and how do I handle it, and how do I apply it. Don't bother with this. Trust it, trust it. It will go deeper naturally. So an important feature of our practice, as I mentioned, and as we've been getting in the important reminders from uh, Sylvia with uh, uh, the meta practices. We particularly want to see wherever there's any areas of life which are being held on to, 
holding on to. To be aware of any areas in our life and once and for all, in this retreat, once and for all, to be free from all blame. That there is nothing and no one to blame. Not oneself, not other, because there is no self, no other in the first place except what the mind fixes. To be as crystal clear about this and the crystal clarity about it is the equanimity expressing itself. And this is divine. Sometimes, as some of you report, you say, as one person said today, what I notice in myself, I have a lot of doubt coming up. Doubt about myself and my life and about this and about that. Doubt can run everywhere. I know that. And it can be merciless on us with doubt about anything. Haunt us day and night, make, create sleepless nights through the doubt. I want to find a fresh way to look at this doubt. In the old text, it says, small doubt, small awakening, middle-sized doubt, middle-sized awakening, big doubt, big awakening. Might be worth reflecting on. Sometimes we experience doubt, and sometimes it just seems like another one of those dreadful hindrances may not be. Sometimes we may be experiencing a lot of doubt about what we are to do with our life. Brilliant. Sometimes we're shaken out of our cosy nest of uh, inner peace and harmony. Fantastic. (laughs) It's fine to have a truly unsettled life. It's Fine to have the experience of being totally shaken up. And this is not a Dharma teachings and not for the wimps. It's a hardcore exploration of life. It's not to make life sweet and pleasant and comfortable. It's to wake us up. And we have to take risks. And we have to be shaken up inside. Because sometimes in the shaking up, it shakes up possibilities as well. It's not all bad news being shaken up with life. With doubt, when it comes and manifests, the person can say with great conviction, and it's not a play in words, can say with great conviction, when asked, do you have any doubt about the doubt in your mind? And the person would say, of course not. <laughs> I, I am completely clear that this mind is full of doubts. <laughs> what is this remarkable clarity that is so clear about the doubts? Of course I have doubts. I'm going through them morning and night. I'm completely clear about it. This clarity, of which one has no doubt about, is 
of great significance. This clarity, which one has no doubt about, is of great significance. Small doubt, small awakening. Little doubt, middle awakening. Big doubt, big awakening. Doubt and awakening are... They share the same bed. Nice. Equanimity as a bridge has another, another very, very important place to play. And it's also that, therefore, it's a, a Brahma Vihara, it's a divine abiding. As one person was reporting today, it was a, a joy to listen to some of the uh, one to ones today. And the person walked out of the, uh, the room over there in the uh, council building. Just listening to that made my day. It's beautiful. Deep truths coming out of people, sometimes more than they realize. And one person was reporting that he, in this case, touching a, a deep place inside, noticing at a very subtle and moment-to-moment level just the arising and the passing, the arising and the passing. Very subtle, very fine, very, very deep. And of course there's a certain vulnerability with this. How our life is so, just in the moment, and how ephemeral it is, and just moment to moment, subtle. Moment comes, moment goes, another moment comes, another moment goes, another moment comes, another moment goes. Whoa, whoa. Can't hold on to any moment. Can't hold on to it. And in the subtlety of that moment to moment, with all the concentration and the depth that uh, accompanies it, it's not surprising that a little bit of the old mind enters into that depth about life, about birth and death, uh, some uh, uh, touch of fear. And so then some of the fear, the old, the agitation or whatever, begins. And then once we want to control that, that fear, that pressure, wow, well, this life, it's, I can't get a hold of it. I just can't keep it as I want it. And that pressure and that fear and that control then intensifies the fear. And sometimes in the intensification of the fear, the body shakes. Oh my God, the body can shake. It can just, the whole skeleton can rattle inside. Wow, this is life. And it isn't easy. And this is where we need the divinity of the equanimity. To be able to stay steady in the face of life shaking at its own insecurity. Shaking at the knowledge of its own mortality. Sometimes just to stay steady with that that equanimity. Yet, as I mentioned, the very same equanimity, this very same divine element, is the bridge, is a bridge, to that which is greater than itself. 
Maybe a little hard to follow. There is a depth. There's a, the, the vibration of life, the fluctuation of life, the, 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 the momentary, 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 momentary existence going on right in front of the equanimity, so to speak. And one says, yes, I know that. I know what this life is like. Let there just be an abiding with this equanimity, just to stay steady in the face of what this life is. And in that steadiness, that equanimity, we are remarkably intimate with that which is unshakable. Call it by whatever name you wish, or no name. The very equanimity, the very steadiness, is the intimation of that which is truly steady. Which is not shaken by anything. Which no matter what goes on, no matter what goes on, that remains utterly untroubled by it all. And so sometimes we, as it were, lift our interest off the momentary, momentary, momentary vulnerability of existence. Off the world of arising and passing. Off the world of Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. Off the world of comings and goings. Because it's not the true reality. It's the world of the construct. And this, the equanimity is the whisper, the intimation of it, of something which is unconstructed, unconstructable. And think, wow, what a journey we make between living in a fascination with attraction and aversion and believing in it, to touching that which is divine, to discovering that equanimity which is steady, and to realizing that which is unconstructable and therefore not subject to birth and death, not subject to coming and going. Here is our security. Here is our true home. Nowhere else. May all beings explore equanimity. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings know authentic security. Let's have a quiet minute together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.